This is me. Yep. It's a good song. I love this song. Really, really good yeah, song. One of the best. Yeah. Can I call you tomorrow? Absolutely. I guess it worked. They're getting married this summer, so whatever. <laughs> well, uh, here at North Terrace, we are firm believers in this truth, that God is the creator, that he is the designer uh, of us, and that he, he wants so badly for us to know who he is. He wants so badly for us to know what life is, how life is best lived, that he gave us a book. And this is his story. And it's made up of 66 other books that, that kind of all come together and tell the same story. And as we read about his story, we learn a lot about the author. We learn about his nature. We learn about his characteristics, about who he is. And over the past four weeks, we've been going through the book of Ruth and talking about the fact that God, he, that he is sovereign, that he is good, that he has a plan for our lives and especially a plan for our love life. But we have to choose. He gives us this thing called free will. He's not going to force himself on any of us. He wants you to choose to either love him or leave him. He wants you to choose to follow him or to go your own way. And this is the big idea for this series called Happily Even After, is that God has an amazing story for your love life. He is writing a great story. But we have to choose to follow him. And if we don't, then we will settle for far, far less. The book of Ruth has is, is been t called by, by many to be a short story that is the best love story written, ever written. And every love story, and this is true about all stories, all have this thing in common. 
is that all love stories are full of complications. No love story ever came easy, right? You, there's always plot twists and turns and, and obstacles to overcome. For instance, in the, in the classic movie Casablanca, you have Rick Blaine and Ilsa Lund, and their romance is blocked when Nazi Germany comes marching into Paris. Or in the, the romantic movie in the 1980s was with Patrick Swayze's character and Demi Moore and the movie Ghost. It had obstacles because he was well, dead and she was really into pottery. Um, it's been a while since I've seen the movie. I don't really remember exactly how it goes. And then my, my wife's favorite movie is You've Got Mail, her favorite like chick flick. And I know that, that Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, that they're, they're blocked. Their romance is not meeting because of t- corporate takeovers and dial-up internet. So the book of Ruth is, is the same thing. It's full of complications for our characters. And if you've not been here, maybe this is the first time you've been here, and you're like, I don't, I'm not, I'm, I've got some catching up to do or whatever, I'm going to do a quick kind of recap from where we've been over the last few chapters. It opens up, the book of Ruth, with this guy named Elimelech. Would you turn to your neighbor and say Elimelech three times? Well, someone said when they did that, they were going, Elimelech, 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 Elimelech. Second service is kind of weird, but that's what they do. And Yeah, exactly. Um, so Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, they are Israelites. They're from uh, Bethlehem, this t- little town, small town of Bethlehem. And God has sent a famine on Israel because they are rebelling against him. And so Elimelech and Naomi, they decide that they are going to take matters into their own own hands. They're going to not trust God. They're going to to go to this foreign country of Moab and set up shop there. They're going to live there for a while. They take their two sons, uh, Malon and Chilion, and they marry them off to Moabite women, gals named Orpah and Ruth. Well, there in Moab, tragedy strikes when Elimelech, he dies. Well, then they live there for the next 10 years. And the Bible's clear that neither Orpah nor Ruth are able to conceive a child. They're barren. Tragedy strikes again. Another complication. When Naomi's two sons, the the husbands of Orpah and Ruth, they die leaving Naomi homeless, helpless, and hopeless. She hears that the famine has been lifted from Israel, so she decides, I'm going to go back home. And Orpah, she says, I'm staying here in Moab. I'm going to stay with my family, my parents, my gods. But Ruth says, I will go with you. Wherever you go, I will go. Your God has become my God. She now follows the God of the Bible, the, 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 the one true God. And so they come back to Bethlehem, very different. Naomi, she comes just broken and, and shattered. And the women of Bethlehem, they see her and they say, welcome back, Naomi. And she kind of shoots them a look and says, don't you call me that. My name is no longer Naomi, because Naomi means pleasant. You call me Mara, because that means bitter. The Bible says that she's become exceedingly bitter. She thinks God is against her, that he's punishing her. She doesn't realize 
that God, the author of her story, is already writing the next chapter of her story. And it's a chapter of love, a chapter of thriving. But she can't flip to the end of the page. She, she doesn't know what's coming like we can see. She's right there in the middle of it. So in chapter 3, Naomi comes back, and she's, there's another complication here in the love story. As they, as they come back uh, to Bethlehem, uh, Naomi and Ruth have, have nothing. So, so Naomi uh, says to Ruth, you need to go get some work. You need, I'm, I, I, it's not in me to work anymore. So Ruth goes to work as a gleaner in the harvest fields. And she's there kind of picking up the scraps, the leftovers that the workers have left behind. And she comes to a field that's owned by a guy named Boaz. And Boaz shows up on the scene, this godly man, excellent character. The Bible says he's a worthy man. He notices Ruth and says to her, because he's attracted to her, he's attracted to her beauty, attracted to her character. He says, I want you to come back to my field every single day. Work here. I will protect you. I will provide for you. So us, as we're reading through Ruth, we're going, finally, something good for our heroes of our story. The boy has met the girl. He is pursuing her. I can see what's happening, and they don't have a clue, right? And so there's a complication, though, that arises again, because there's no advancement in the relationship. Boaz, our bachelor, is not offering her a rose yet. He's not calling her on the phone. He's not asking her out. They're just not making any movement here. But Ruth comes back, and she tells Naomi, guess who I just met? This This man, he's dreamy. His name is Boaz. And Naomi, she starts to see it. She gets like a sneak peek at that next chapter that God is writing in her story. She sees that God has been working in the wings of their life the entire time and that he's about to do something great through this man named Boaz, because what she knows about him is that he is a kinsman redeemer, which may not mean anything to you if you don't know what this is. And you can actually read about it in Deuteronomy 25. But this is an ancient Israelite custom, that if you were an Israelite husband and you were to die and not have a son who would carry on your family name, that your widow was not allowed to, to marry outside the family. She had to go to your closest of kin. And if he said that he was already married or that he refused to marry you, you'd have to go to the next one. The next, and go all the way down the line until someone would marry you and give you a son and that he would also get the land that was of your, your, your former husband, your deceased husband. That was the, and so Naomi knows that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer for them. So in chapter 3, where we were last week, Naomi comes up with a bit of a strategy. And it's a little bit of a weird strategy to try to get these two kids to, to move on in their relationship. But what happens basically is Ruth sneaks into the place where Boaz is sleeping. She uncovers his feet and lays down at his feet. This is a, this is a, a gesture That she is saying to him, I desire to be your wife. I desire for you to be my husband. I submit to this. 
And Boaz, he, he gets the picture. He realizes she's not proposing, but she's proposing that I propose to her. But here's another complication. Boaz says, you are correct. I am a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer for you. But I'm not the next in line. There is another who legally needs to be asked first. There's another guy now in our love story. Another complication. But Boaz assures Ruth. He says to her, listen, as soon as you leave this morning, I'm going to go out and I'm going to find that guy and I'm going to bring this to him. And if he says, yes, I will redeem, then you will have to marry him. But if he says, no, I promise you, I will redeem you. Either way, you will be cared for and your mother-in-law will be cared for. So chapter 4 opens, and that's where we are today. Chapter 4 opens up, and we see immediately that Boaz is a man of action. He is a, a, a man on a mission, a man of his word. He tells Ruth, I will take care of this, and take care of this, he shall. All great love stories have this in common, too. They all have characters who take urgent action. Think about your lo- the love story that you, maybe your favorite love story, and think about the urgent actions that they might have taken place there. You know, over the past few weeks, I've been going through this series. I've talked to many of you. People have come up to me or sent me an email or messaged me and said, listen, God is, God is really speaking to me because, you know, in my dating life, my, in my dating relationship, it's not on, honoring God right now. Or in my marriage, right now, I am not the husband, I am not the wife God has called me to be, and it's negatively affecting our marriage. And I wonder if maybe God is speaking to some of you today. And I wonder, is there urgent action taking place? This dating relationship that I'm in is not healthy. He is not a follower of Christ. She is not following God, and I am. We are unequally yoked. But then we start to justify it, don't we? But he's really nice, and I don't want to be lonely, and maybe I can change him. Or maybe in our, our marriage, we, we know that we're in a bit of a rut, that we're in this, 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 this routine, and it's not all that God wants it to be, and we know something's wrong, but yet we're not having the conversation. We're not seeking out Christian counseling. We're not pursuing our spouse and dating our spouse to try to reignite the passion that we once had in that relationship. And I go, where is the urgent action in the story that God wants to write in your life? You need to be a character who says, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to take action and I'm going to do it urgently. We see that with Boaz. As soon as Ruth walks out the door in the morning, he He doesn't shower. He doesn't change his clothes. He doesn't shave. He doesn't check the sports scores. He does stop for a moment to tweet something out, though. He's on Twitter. He says, when you want to marry your bae, but have to offer her to another first, hashtag shaking my head. There you go. So dumb. Uh, Boaz goes out immediately. And gets this done. Back in week two, ladies, do you remember when we were constructing kind of a list of what a godly man looks like and what you shouldn't settle for anything less than? 
There's another characteristic about Boaz that I think it was worth calling out here. It's one maybe you can add to your list. It's this one. It's congruency. It's you, you want a man who, who cares for you, who's going to protect you. You want a man who's going to do what he said he was going to do and be where he said he will be. And that's who Boaz is. During week one, I had my wife, Janie, come up and she shared her story about a season of, of tragedy in her life, of broken relationships. She shared that she was previously married for 11 years, but then uh, the bomb was dropped and she learned that, that her husband was being unfaithful to her for many years. And when we began to date, after all that was over, she said to me, I'm going to have a hard time trusting anybody. I want you to know that. She said, when all this came out, I began to go back through my life, and I remembered key times when I would call my husband on the phone, and he wouldn't answer, or he wasn't where he said he was going to be. And that should have been a red flag for me, but for whatever reason, it wasn't at the time. But now I see that to be true. So I had to make a cognitive effort in that time. I said, listen, I am going to make sure that my cell phone is on me at all times. To build her trust, to win her heart, I am going to have my phone on me all the time so that if I'm in a meeting or I'm, I'm available, I'm going to answer my phone or I'm going to text her immediately saying, hey, I can't take the call right now, but I'll call you right back, just so that she knows I'm engaged here. You can reach me at all times. So one time I was out mowing my grass, and I had my phone with me. I was wearing basketball shorts with no pockets. So I had no place to put my phone, so I had to hold on to it the whole time while I'm pushing my little mower around. I had it on vibrate because I couldn't hear the ringtone over the mower, so I wanted to feel the vibration, you know, whatever. That sounds like a song. And uh, uh, <laughs> that was dumb, way. Uh, so I'm pushing it around, and I also, the, the, the lawnmower gets filled with grass, and I'm emptying it out, and I have to take the garbage can and the bag to the front of the house and put a new bag in, and I don't have enough hands. So in that 90 seconds, I put my phone on top of the mower and I go and take the stuff over to the front of the house and get a new bag and come back. Guess what? You know, Janie calls during that 90-second window. And apparently, because I had it on vibrate, the phone starts to, just to rattle and rattle and falls off the lawnmower. So I come back, I put the bag on, and I'm not thinking. I start up the mower and I start going. Ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk. My phone is in millions of pieces all over my backyard. And I was a fun story to tell Janie about later. Why well, I couldn't answer my phone. Boaz is our man of action, our king of congruency. He heads immediately to the town gate. The town gate in that culture is the place where the men would gather and business was conducted and legal matters were settled. But why go there? Because Boaz comes there, first thing, he sits down and waits. Why go to the town gate? Because he knows the man's address. He knows who this guy is. This is a small town. He is a relative of his. Why not go over to his house, sit on the porch, have a cup of coffee, and talk this thing out one-on-one? Boaz wants an audience. 
He wants witnesses to this conversation so that when it's all done, the decision's made, he wants other witnesses there to say, yes, we heard this. This is exactly what transpired. This is why we, we, we agree with this decision. Well, he sits there, and guess who walks by? The rival redeemer. He comes walking by. And this is something you need to see here in, in, cha- in verse 1 of chapter 4. Boaz says to the man, he says, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he says, friend, it says here in our English translation, friend, maybe your translation might say something a little different, but the word friend here is actually not Boaz being kind. He's actually kind of, the the Hebrew word for the word friend here is actually when you know the name of something, but you don't want to say it. You guys do this a lot with that state up north right? You don't want to say the name. I just, I just thought of that. That's the first time I'm looking at you Buckeye fans. You're going, yeah, that stayed up north. You know, you do it with, you know, you know who I'm talking about, Mr. Mr. What's-His-Face. Uh, you know what it's called. It's a whatchamacallit. This past weekend, we've been dog-sitting for Katie and Peyton Norris. They have a dog named Squeak, and we've been dog-sitting for them while they were gone this weekend. And, and, and she sent us this long email about the list of instructions of how to take care of Sir Squeaks a lot. And one of the items on the list is doggy do bags. No, doggy do baggies. And I'm sorry, calling it doggy do does not make it cute, nor does it change what that is. But that's what Boaz is kind of doing here. He, he, he's, the translation here, what he is saying is hey, Mr. So and so, get over here and sit down. He refuses to call him by name. Does he know his name? Yes. This is a small town. He's a relative of his. Of course he knows who the name is. But he refuses to call him by his name. And this is why. Because in the Old Testament, in the Bible, names are so important. They all have meaning. And here's the reason why that he doesn't say his name and why the narrator of the book of Ruth does not say it. I put there in your notes. The narrators of the Old Testament believed when you name someone in your story, you give them prominence. And when you give them prominence, you give them power. And the last thing that Boaz wants to give Mr. What's-His-Face is any prominence or any power in this story. The only man who is right for Ruth is him. Not this guy. This guy is just an obstacle. He's just a, a, a character in the play in the back. He's not the starring role. So he refuses to name this guy. And I wonder, in your life, what are you giving prominence to that you are allowing to have power in your life? Because when you give it power, it drives the plot line of your story. Is it debt? That you have the I wants so bad that even though you don't have the resources, you take the card and swipe it and swipe it and swipe it until finally that comes down to a crushing debt. And God says, no, that's not what I want from your life. I want you to have, I want you to be generous. And we're going, well, we can't be generous, God, because I have all this debt. Or maybe it's fear that has a prominent place, that now has power in your life. Because I hear this sometimes. I hear, you know, we live in Zanesville. It's such a small town. 
And we serve, a, uh, we serve a, a God who does small town things here. He can't do big things. And I say, well, wait a minute. God says that he can do incredibly more than we ask or imagine. And that he is not a small town God. He is a global and universal God who loves to take the ordinary and do extraordinary things with them. And so when we go around saying, the, I'm afraid of what God is calling me to do, which is the opposite of faith. Fear is the opposite of faith. That we say, well, I'm, I'm afraid because I don't think we're, God can do this. We're allowing our fear to drive our story, and we're going to settle for so much less than what God wants to do through us. What are you allowing a prominent place in your life and giving it too much power over you? Is it an illness? Is it your own drive for success, significance? Is it another person? It's what happens when we grab the pen out of God's hand and say, I don't want you writing my story. I'm going to write it for me. We settle for far less than what God wants from us. Boaz, he calls together 10 of the, of the town elders and has them come sit down too. And now the court is in session. He kind of walks up and says, Mr. So-and-so, this is a small town, Bethlehem. I'm sure you are well aware that a few weeks ago, Naomi has come back to Bethlehem. You're actually one of her closest relatives, are you not? You must have heard all about the fact that she is now a widow and that you are the closest redeemer to her. What he's doing is he's pretty much calling Mr. What's-His-Face out in front of the elders saying, what has he done? He is legally the one who's supposed to be taking care of them, and he has done nothing. When Boaz, he's been providing for them, he has been protecting them, it hasn't been his responsibility, but he's a man of action. But then he looks at him again and says, it is your legal responsibility now because Naomi wants to sell the land that belonged to Elimelech and his sons. And you need to redeem that. Are you, are you going to do this in front of all these witnesses? And he's, all he hears at this moment is real estate. Yes, I can grow some crops. I can sell them. I can build some condos. I can rent them out. I'm going to be rich. But Boaz goes, mm, hang on a second. Congratulations on the sale, but here's the deal. You got, there's a few minor fine print items I want to make sure you know about. Because once you acquire this land, you also acquire the daughter-in-law of Naomi. And you have to marry her. And did I mention that she is a Moabite? Now, the Israelites, they had this view of the Moabites that they were the scum of the earth. Right? They, they were, definitely had a racist view of them because the Moabites originated from an incestuous relationship. You can read about it in the book of Genesis between a guy named Lot and his daughter. Together, they have a son named Moab who is the, the father of the Moabites. And so the Israelites look at the Moabites and go, ugh, they're just, they're this, they're, they're second-class citizens. We don't want them part of our, our, of our family. And so you better believe Boaz couldn't emphasize enough. Oh yeah, you got to marry the Moabite. And after you marry the Moabite, you have to have a child with her, a son, 
And he's like, I don't want to tarnish my family line by mixing it up with this Moabite. No way. So he says in verse 6, he says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So he bows out right in front of the elders, in front of everybody there at the town gate, and says, I'm out. And the only obstacle left between Ruth and Boaz has now been removed. And Ruth gets the marriage that she has wanted from the beginning here. It says in verse 13 of Ruth, of chapter 4, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. They have their wedding. They go off into their honeymoon. And as we talked about last week, we see that God designed sex to be um, between a one man and one woman in a holy covenant of marriage. That God has designed it to permanently bond together a husband and wife in the deepest part of their souls. And that we as a church, man, we cannot be afraid or ashamed to talk about that because the Bible and God's story talks about it quite a bit. It says, he went into her and the Lord gave her conception. And they have a honeymoon baby. That is like efficiency right there, I tell you. And she bore a son, a son. Don't get, this is so great. I love this. So Naomi. Naomi is now a what? A grandma, right? And this is what the ladies of Bethlehem say about Naomi. They say, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name, not talking about God, not talking about Boaz, talking about their son. They name him Obed. May he be famous. May he be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. So the book of Ruth closes, not on Ruth, and not on Boaz, but on Naomi. Grandma Naomi, and she's there rocking in her rocking chair, holding this little baby boy close, doing what I see other grandmas do, kissing his neck, giving him zerberts on the belly, and telling, like my mom does for her grandchildren, never says no to anything that they ask for. Naomi has no idea, though, how good God is how sovereign he is. She's rocking this little baby, but what she has no idea is that this little boy is going to grow up and become the grandfather of the greatest king in all of Israel, King David. Think about this. The book of Ruth opens with with, with Naomi Her husband dead, her two sons dead, the family line is dead. She's bitter about that, she's broken, she knows there's no hope. But the book of Ruth opens, or closes, with a genealogy, a family tree, which includes God bringing a king into their family line. 
It ends with a genealogy. The Bible says in verse 21 that Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed with Ruth's help. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. The same shepherd boy that became a king. And the the Bible says was the man after God's own heart. Do you know there's another book in the Bible that actually opens with a genealogy? Matthew chapter 1, this is what it says. The book of the genealogy of who? Jesus Christ, the family tree of Jesus Christ, the son of... You cannot miss this. So as Naomi is rocking this little boy, she doesn't know it's King David's grandfather that she's rocking. She doesn't have a clue that the little boy she's rocking is actually going to one day be the great, 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 grandfather to Jesus himself. Another shepherd, another king that's going to come that will establish a kingdom with no end who will be a redeemer for a people who are homeless and helpless and hopeless. Who he's going to help find a way back to God. Listen, the, the, the heroes of the story of Ruth, it's not Ruth. It's not Boaz. It's not even Naomi. The hero of the story of Ruth is God and God himself. And what he is revealing to us through the book of Ruth is that you are Ruth. You are Naomi, and so am I. And he says, I want to be your Boaz. He says, you're going to go through a life and you're going to have a season of uh, of famine. You're going to have seasons of brokenness, of bitterness, of loneliness, of being far from me. But I stand at the ready. I want to pursue you. I'm going to protect you. I want to provide for you. I want to care for you. I want to redeem you. But you have to make a choice, just like Ruth did in chapter 3. You have to come and submit yourself and lay yourself at the foot of the Redeemer. You need to surrender to him. God wants nothing more to be sovereign and good and take all of our brokenness and all of our, the things in our life and put it together and bring a king forth in your life as well, that king being Jesus. And this is what the Bible says about Jesus in the book of Colossians. It says that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that he is risen from the dead, that he is alive that in everything he might be preeminent. So let me ask you today, as we wrap up this great story, what is prominent in your life? What has power in your life? And can you identify those things that are driving the plot line of your story? Because if your answer is not Jesus, you are settling for far less than what he wants from you. And today I ask you to, to, to commit with boldness that Jesus, you would choose him in all things and let him be the king, the ultimate, the prominent, the preeminent of your life. And let him write your story and that you would be bold to follow him. 
And if you're not ready to, to come down and to, during this decision song to make that decision, we're going to see a baptism here in a few minutes, but maybe you're not ready for that decision. You couldn't have better timing because tonight we're going to have our discovery class from 5 to 7. If you have an RSVP, you can come and bring your questions. We'll bring our answers because we're going to bring our Bible and we'll point you to the truth. And you can be ready then to make that decision. But, but do something. Let God take that pen and write that story. Would you stand where you are? We're going to sing the song of decision and then we're going to watch this baptism. But if you have a decision, it can be your time too.